0: Well, we have a special treat to, for you this morning. One, one of the things that I love about uh, what we do here at Northridge is we've had the opportunity over the past decade to meet with men that felt, um, to some degree or another, the call of God on their lives. And uh, one such person is Tyler Tennis that many of you know. Tyler has been coming to the church a little under a year now, Right and um, and he just has immediately gotten in with both feet and, and him and his wife Angelita and their children and they have been nothing but a blessing to Northridge. He's uh, begun leading our men's ministry and if you're not coming to that, you should show up. We're going to have one this Saturday at 8 o'clock and they are fantastic, great discussion, real good insight and so we're real grateful for that. Tyler himself has been in the... Uh, uh in the air force you told me 17 years is that correct for 17 years he has reached the rank of major he works at Texas Tech ROTC now and when he is done with that assignment um what his greatest desire is is to be a christian educator and um and just a really as he already is a really devout churchman and one of the things that uh, I really appreciate him is he really sees culture and where it's going and really understands it from a gospel perspective. And so he wants to spend his remaining working years working in Christian education, primarily in the area of high school education, which I think is fantastic. And so uh, Tyler clearly has demonstrated to our church a, a teaching gift. And so we, uh, myself, Pastor David and Gabriel, we thought that this would be a perfect time to showcase that for you as the body of Christ. So if you would, we're going to read the if you would stand, we're going to read the his text for today, which is going to be found for you in Ephesians chapter four. And we're going to begin in verse uh, 7. Now, I also want to tell you, if if you need to use one of those blue Bibles in the back of the chairs there, you can find this text on page 568, and it'll continue over to page 569. But we're going to read 7 through 16. And so if you would give your attention to this passage... Oh, by the way, I, I don't do this very often, so I forgot to tell you, if you don't have a Bible... By all means, take that Bible that's in the chair. We want to give that to you as a gift. But but now I call your attention to the scriptures and, and, and uh, call you to hear the word of the Lord. And this is what we read. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also had descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for who, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Thus says the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, Church. I'm going to go ahead and open us up with prayer. Please bow your head with me. Father, thank you for the opportunity to preach the word to my brothers and sisters this morning. I pray that you would use my message to strengthen them, edify them, and help them to grow in their confidence to use their talents, gifts, and ability for your glory. I pray that we will be a church that builds each other up into a mature body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we haven't been preaching through the book of Ephesians, so I'm going to start with some background. Um, We're going to get into the history of the church at Ephesus, and from there we're going to start talking about the culture and the city at Ephesus. Um, As I go through this, Think about some of the similarities between our city here in Lubbock and the city in Ephesus, because there's a lot of parallels as we go through. We're not so much different from our first century brothers and sisters. So the first century church was key to spreading the gospel through the Mediterranean world. The churches in Ephesus, Colossae, and Laodicea were located in a critical network of Roman cities, roads, and ports. Due to this, they were a melting pot of culture, which presented some unique challenges. Members would have been of different ethnicities, economic statuses, and religious backgrounds. The city of Ephesus was no exception. Paul's letter to the Ephesians addresses many of these issues found in the church. Central to his overall message was that God gave the saints unique gifts, which worked together as the body of Christ so the church may attain spiritual maturity. So the church in Ephesus was central to Paul's mission um, to the Gentiles, and it is first discussed in the Book of Acts during Paul's second mission. After establishing the church in Corinth, Paul stopped in Ephesus around A.D. 52, and he stayed there a short period to help Aquila and Prisca become established and left them to care for the members at Ephesus until his return about a year later. After his return, Paul started with sharing the gospel at the local synagogue, which is where he normally started. He preached for three months until he was thrown out of the synagogue. From there, he moved to a secular hall where he continued to preach for the next two years. At this location, which became the church at Ephesus, Paul and his congregation were able to spread the gospel throughout the region. At one point, the church in Ephesus became so successful, it disrupted the local economy. Silversmiths, who profited from the sale of Artemis statues, were losing money as people abandoned their idol worship. Luke records a man named Demetrius called together the local silversmiths and rallied them in the theater against the Ephesian Christians. The crowd, eventually dispersed by the local clerk, who worried the crowd was getting too big, so this stadium they were in could hold 25,000 people, which is about a third of the Jones Stadium, At Texas Tech. This was not a small crowd. He was worried that it would bring problems with the Roman officials. So clearly the church was impacting the local community with a message that was contrary to the regional culture at the time. At the end of Paul's third mission, he traveled to several of the churches to say his farewells before returning to Jerusalem. Paul met with the elders at Ephesus about 30 miles south of the city and gave an important speech. It's actually the only speech that Luke records in the book of Acts. In his speech, Paul warned fierce wolves would come and ravage the flock. And we know from Revelation chapter 2 that this prediction came true as false teachings continuously plagued Ephesus in the years that followed. The false teachings were likely a problem because Ephesus was a central city in the first century world. It was the fourth or fifth largest city in the Roman Empire, with a population about 250,000, so um, about the same size as Lubbock. Immigration was likely a factor in maintaining the city's population, as the infant mortality rate was estimated at 50% by their fifth year of life, so they needed a continuous um, flow of immigrants to maintain the city's population. Also, the city would have attracted many people as a political, religious, and commercial center. It was the home of a major commercial port and was also centrally located along major north-south, east-west roads, making it a hub for the region, just as we are a hub. It should be no surprise to find differing religions in a city with a diverse population as Ephesus. The city was dominated by Greco-Roman culture, The worship of the goddess Artemis was also central to their identity and pride. Ephesus was also the home of the rebuilt temple to Artemis, which was completed around 250 B.C. It was so extravagant that it became known as one of the wonders of the world. The Ephesians also supported the Roman imperial cult, which dramatically increased in the first century after Ephesus was awarded its first imperial temple. Central to the imperial cult was the worship of Roman emperors, viewed as the essential expression of loyalty and gratitude as a part of a citizenship. In addition to these Greco-Roman traditions, Paul also encountered other false religions. The first account involves students of a supposed Jewish high priest. In Acts, Luke records Jewish exorcists who claim to be sons of a high priest Seba. However, There's no record of a high priest named Siva. Some of you may be familiar with the story in Acts, where after Siva had a failed attempt to exercise a demon using Jesus' name, him and his students were humiliated when the possessed man exclaimed, Jesus, I know. Paul, I've heard of, but who are you? Another false tradition found in the city was that of magic scrolls for which Ephesus was famous. Reportedly, these scrolls contained all sorts of strange words and spells. However, Paul convinced the Ephesian Christians of the scroll's worthlessness, and they publicly burned their magic books. In addition to the various religious practices, Ephesus was marked by diverse peoples, languages, and social practices. This climate marked the situation which Paul confronted, and later John's revelation would appear to respond Part of this response includes Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which we're looking at today. So as we get into the text, I want to back up a little bit. So if everybody could turn in their Bibles to Ephesus chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, let's see how Paul leads into chapter 4. I, therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called So we can see here that Paul is focusing on unity between believers with the idea of believers being built together under Christ and in one spirit. But starting in verse 7, Paul switches the focus to the individual, affirming Christ has given each believer gifts. So he wrote in Ephesians 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. These gifts are spiritual gifts, by the grace of God, which have not been distributed equally. No, instead Christ chose how to divide grace between each member, which is distinct and different. Through his gifts, unity and maturity are brought about, and this extraordinarily accomplished through individuality, as believers were not gifted equally, it requires the members of the church to depend on one another. Similar to First Corinthians twelve four, which says there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Continuing in verse eight, Paul uses Psalm sixty eight eighteen as supporting evidence of these gifts. In this psalm, God won the war, and now His people will share in the gifts of victory. It was composed by David to celebrate the conquest of a Jezebite city. David describes a victory parade up Mount Zion, attributing the victory to God. This parade illustrated God ascending, not up to Mount Zion, but to heaven. Additionally, it was common after a king won a military victory to bring back the spoils of war to his people. So, we see in verse 8 that Paul is providing an illustration of how Jesus gives to the church following his victory on the cross. In chapter 1, Paul explains Jesus was raised to heaven by the Father, building on the image of Jesus conquering his enemies and returning to the Father's throne to bestow blessings on his people. In verses 9 and 10, Paul makes a note, clarifying ascension and dissension in Psalm 68:18. In saying he ascended, What does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all, the heaven, that he might fill all things. So Paul may have made this note understanding the audience at Ephesus was diverse. The Jews at Ephesus would be familiar with the Old Testament reference, where the Gentiles may have needed clarity. Starting in verse 9, Paul explains... In order for God to ascend, he must have first descended. Most scholars agree ascended refers to the Lord being taken up to heaven. However, there is some debate as to where the Lord descended. Determining the destination hinges on what Paul intends by lower regions, as as stated in verse 9. The passage was historically understood as Jesus descending into hell, where he preached a proclamation of freedom to an unknown audience. However, this interpretation has fallen out of favor. The descent from heaven to earth likely referred to Christ's incarnation or less likely the coming of the Spirit. In both cases, the descent will refer to earth and not hell. If Paul is speaking of the incarnation, as I believe it is, then the ascended Lord is the one who came down, shared in the sorrows and temptation of human life. Jesus feels and understands our needs today. Paul continues in verse 11, describing the people as gifts and their unique ministries. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. The church may appoint people to different functions. But unless they have gifts of the Spirit, the gifts from Christ to his church, their appointment is of limited value. As Paul showed in verses 7 and 8, there is a relationship between the the call to unity and the gifts Christ has given. The spiritual gifts are at the heart of Christ's strategy for building his church. In addition to the gifts provided to each believer, Christ also gave the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. These are uniquely gifted people selected to prepare the saints for ministry. Look at verse 12. They are specifically gifted for equipping, for ministry, and for building up. Now, church, there is some debate as to how this is accomplished. These three objectives may be completed in parallel, in sequence, or in a mixed fashion. If Paul intended them to be parallel, then the listed leaders would do all three. For example, Pastor Mark would be responsible to equip people, do works of service, and build up the body. However, the idea of our leaders doing all the work contradicts verses 15 and 16, which we'll see later. So I don't think it's in parallel. Alternatively, they may be listed in sequence, and if this is correct, Pastor Mark would equip us, the church, which leads us to complete works of service, resulting in the body of Christ being built up. Now, this in-sequence idea is consistent with the idea of the body working in unison, but it's really rigid, almost like a factory assembly line. So the last option is they're completed in a mixed fashion. If this is the case, then Pastor Mark and the elders are responsible for equipping all of us which leads us to do both works of service and building up the body and I think this is correct. We all work and support each other. The mixed perspective can also be seen in 1st Corinthians 12:28, which includes a similar list. Both lists of gifts allow members to exercise their ministries in a way which helps other members of the church execute their ministries. The leader's task is to prepare the people if properly equipped and the people are willing to minister to each other, the whole body is built up, matured, and thrives. In verse 13, Paul shows the church, Church's goal is for each of us to grow in knowledge and maturity to show the world the body of Christ. Significant amounts of research have gone into understanding what establishes maturity in the areas of spiritual and social life. Knowledge is typically considered a part of maturity. But there is more to maturity than knowledge alone. For example, another important aspect of maturity is the ability to relate well to others and to support each other. So Paul, in verse 13, combines the idea of maturity and knowledge with unity, which Paul introduced at the beginning of chapter 4, further developing what it means to build up the body of Christ. Moving into verse 14, Paul highlights the immaturity which was found in the congregation at Ephesus. He writes, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped with each part working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love the ephesians were acting like children using cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes but we're not supposed to act like children we should be we should not be easily per- persuaded moving from one opinion to another this was an important message to Ephesus, as there were many competing ideas and false doctrines found within their community. Similar to other churches in the region, they faced teachers with opposing viewpoints. This divided the church into opposing factions. The Ephesians had not reached a level of spiritual maturity, but were still acting as children. Without unity, the church was immature, saying one thing and then being led astray by another. Rather, believers are to speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love is marked by maturity. However, people, including many of us, often fall into two errors when trying to communicate the truth. We may speak the truth without love, or we may love without speaking the truth. The first case leads some to brutalize others with the truth because it lacks compassion. On the other hand, some will try and love, but not share the truth, Thinking it will spare pain and avoid hurt feelings. However, not sharing the truth will delay people from reaching maturity. Sharing the truth is a sign of maturity, but it must be done with love and compassion. Speaking the truth further counters the elements of deceit Paul writes about in verse 13 and returns to a positive relate, returns positive relationships. Truth in scripture implies dependability and integrity which are also signs of a mature individual. As the whole body grows and matures into Christ as the head. Indeed, the church is an allusion to his whole body, but Christ is the head. This idea is expressed in Ephesians one twenty two and will be again in chapter five. Paul also used the illustration in his letter to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter two, Paul describes divisiveness and instructs that they must hold fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knitted together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. The body depends on the Lord's direction for its growth and work, providing the arrangement for the members. This is a mutual relationship. The body can only be healthy if the members are dependent on Christ. He provides the gifts, as each member uses their gift for the benefit of others. As the body, it's important for us to understand we belong to one another and need one another. Just as the human body is held together by design, the church grows through the coordinated work of all of us, which should be done out of love and under guidance of the head who watches over and provides for us. So when we apply this, the first thing we need to understand is what we, we as we grow together, We need to use our unique gifts and callings for each other. But what is our calling? Christ provides all believers with unique gifts. And Christ will typically come to a point in life when we seriously examine our gifts, personality, and passions. It's normal for us to reflect on our uniqueness and how God has made us. It's good for us to contemplate how to engage people and love people as God does. We're all crafted to a living and dynamic relationship with our Creator. From Genesis to Revelation, the primary concern is God calling His children to Himself into a holy life. This primary calling to God is the unity in which believers function. It is not merely a role, a career, or a location. Sometimes what we typically refer to as a calling is the functional call. And for most people, finding their functional call is a process. The process takes time, prayer, and engagement from others. Many wait to use their gifts until they understand what their gifts are. But this is a mistake. Most of us will not be able to validate our gifts until we begin serving the Lord. We're all gifted differently. We're all crafted to do the work of the saints. So, for example, some of us have the gift of evangelism, but all of us are called to do the work of evangelists from time to time. Some of us have the gift of teaching, but everyone in Northridge will occasionally teach, whether it's our grandchild, our spouse, or a friend. So our functional call and gifts will be identified as we seek various experiences serving and communicating with God through prayer. However, we should not become obsessed with discovering our spiritual gifts and wait until they're known. Rather, we should get busy doing the work Scripture commands. Then, through involvement, we'll find some activities have better results and we'll affirm them to each other. By observing the results, the fruit, each of us receives insight into our spiritual gift and we can then focus in those areas. Conversely, An indicator we have not identified our gift is burnout. If we serve in an area where we're not gifted or where we violate our functional calling, burnout easily sets in. Some say that burnout is the result of trying to give too much. But burnout is often the result of trying to give what we don't possess. Burnout does not result from giving all one has. It results from giving what a person does not have. So as we go through and we work to develop our gifts within each other, we need to work, use these gifts through ministry. So for many of us, the idea of getting a gift is exciting, and this excitement is what many of us enjoy investigating. However, some of us are disinterested or confused when considering what Scripture teaches about building the church through these gifts. The functional calling is to serve the community of faith. However, many in Western Christianity... And America forgotten this. Christians are not called to live on an island alone, but were to be a part of the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. In the body of Christ, each member belongs to one another. Spiritual gifts are not to be hoarded. They're to be used for the benefit of the body. We should enjoy relationships with each other. Without these relationships, it's challenging to enjoy life fully. Our life is supposed to be rich and satisfying through the mutual ministry of our individual gifts. The the unity found in the body of Christ also provides a testimony to the world. Our unity provides evidence that Christ is sent from God. If the world does not see unity, they may assume Christ is not sent from God. Our unity is vital to this witness of Jesus in the world, and it's not incidental. The Lord will use every person in the body of Christ to achieve his ends. The city council member, pastor, truck driver, missionary, farmer, homemaker, retired person, all have a role to play in the kingdom of heaven. We're all called to exercise our spiritual gifts, but the results are up to the Lord. Unfortunately, many focus on their human power and individual works. This tendency is especially found here in the U.S. where many people concentrate on employment or marriage when they speak of God's will. However, God is not an employment agent or a matchmaker. He is our creator. Our functional call is always subordinate and serving our primary call to love and glorify God. When we are responsible with our gifts, the Lord receives proper credit. The body of Christ is matured through our individual gifts and serving one another. The process of maturing occurs under the direction of the head. So a significant amount of research has gone into investigating what it means to be mature. Typically, knowledge is considered a part of maturity, and the church helps its members grow in their knowledge of the Lord. Knowledge may be passed on by teaching spiritual disciplines to its members, These disciplines include exposure to God's word, which is essential for spiritual development. Through the word, our thinking is renewed, allowing believers to break free from the anti-Christian mold the world seeks to press into us. In addition to maturity, it further provides benefits of spiritual formation, including stability, insight, and guidance. Yet there is more to mere maturity than knowledge. For instance, Some of us may be very knowledgeable about church history or the gospel, but have no experience sharing the information with others. A mature believer will have the ability to minister to the body of Christ by sharing their knowledge with other members according to their ability. Maturity is also found in the member's heart. What is on the inside reflects outwardly. Another example of how maturity requires more than knowledge is when individuals fail to act on the knowledge they possess. Some of us may fail to act because of fear or embarrassment, and this is why supporting each other is so essential. Fear or lack of confidence may stem from a weak community, but God empowers us as a corporate entity. The idea of maturity and knowledge is tied to unity and is what it means for the body of Christ to be built up. We are designed to work with each other, each part of Christ's body supporting and strengthening itself as the theologian Daryl Bach highlights in his book, Foundations of Spiritual Formation. Any doubt of unity is erased when one thinks of Jesus' last prayer before he faced the cross in John 17, a prayer for unity among his believers. We as members of the body of Christ build up each other's strengths and shore up each other's weaknesses. As we're matured, we're less likely to be moved by faddish doctrine, human cunning, and deceit. Under the guidance of Christ, Strength is found through community, which sustains Christians when they face conflict in life. I like the way chapter 27 of our church's confession summarizes what we've been discussing. All saints are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith. Although this does not make them one person with him, they have fellowship in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. Since they are united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and, and are obligated to carry out these duties, both public and private, in an orderly way to promote their mutual good, both in the inner and outer aspects of our lives. We can see this in Northridge this morning. The congregation works together as the body, from cleaning the church yesterday to brewing coffee this morning, baking bread for communion, greeting each other at the door, leading each other in worship, and teaching the children in Sunday school. This is just our immediate body, but we also support Ryan Denton as a missionary at Tech, and we're also sending Pastor Dave to Africa to support the body of Christ around the globe. The body of Christ is creating a symphony of praise to God. The first century church was a part of this symphony. The church in Ephesus, Colossae, and Laodicea are also a part of the body of Christ. And from the Christians at Ephesus to here at Northridge today, we are a part of that symphony, a part of the body that continues to mature and grow under Christ's direction. So I'd like to close this out in prayer. Please bow your heads. Father, I pray that my brothers and sisters would be encouraged today that they would be bold in using their gifts in the church and our own hub city to be a light that brings your glory, that we would be a church like Ephesus that distracts and angers the local idol makers of our time and encourages others to burn their magic scrolls. I pray that if anyone in attendance today is not repented of their sins, that they turn to Christ on the cross, receive forgiveness, and that the Spirit would convict their hearts and they would find salvation in Christ's completed work. And Father, I ask that we would be a congregation of believers that would be obedient to Christ's direction as he builds us up into maturity. In Jesus' name, amen.